Grab your Bible and open up with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Um, when I had finished seminary, uh, Stacy and I had moved back to Ontario and we were renting a house, uh, a pretty nice house. We were hoping to buy a house though and um, we weren't sure really if we had enough money to make that happen. And then uh, one day I got a letter in the mail from some lawyers that I had never heard of and and I didn't really know what to expect. It's not every day that I get letters from lawyers. Hope that puts your mind at ease. Um, I don't get letters from lawyers every day. And um, so I opened the envelope, and, and the letter said that um, I was one of the beneficiaries of someone's estate. In other words, I was part of an inheritance that someone else was leaving behind. And so I kept reading the letter and, and uh, saw the amount of money that was being left to me. And let me tell you, that made for a pretty happy day in our rented house. And, and so I read the letter again, and I found the name of uh, the person who had left me this money. And I was, I was being given money by an aunt that I didn't even know that I had. And, and so I, I was reading this letter, and... Um, and I was reading it just to make sure that I was supposed to be the one getting this. And sure enough, my name and my address were on the letter. It was supposed to come to me. And then I called my mom and I asked her about this and because I had never heard of this aunt. And she said, yeah, it all checks out. She had passed away a little while before. And, and I was part of her will. And she was leaving me this money, which then put us in a position where we could buy a house. And, and I had never been through anything like this before. So I was just reading through this paperwork and it said to sign here in a few places, send the paperwork back and, and then the money would show up in your account and sure enough, a few weeks later, there was the money in my account and, and we were able to buy a house. And, and an inheritance changes things, right? An inheritance can make a really, really big difference. And if you have your Bible open right now to Ephesians chapter 1, um, our passage this morning talks about an inheritance uh, that is greater than anything that we can get within this life. Now, we started this series in Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, and, and as we've made our way through this very first section in Ephesians chapter 1, we've come to see that God has a plan that goes back for us all the way into eternity past, all the way back to before time began. And, and Paul says that God has given us every spiritual blessing through Jesus Christ, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, that we should be in this relationship with him before anything around us even existed. God had chosen us to be in relationship with him. That's verse 4. And God determined that all of this would be. And so part of our identity now is wrapped up in the fact that we have been chosen and we have been adopted by God. But then Paul goes on in this passage and he says that all of this is possible through redemption. And that's verse 7. That simply means that God has delivered us through the payment of a price. He has delivered us from the slavery to our sins by giving Jesus to die on the cross in our place and to pay the price for our sins. So now our identity is not simply wrapped up in the reality that we are chosen and adopted by God. But our identity is also wrapped up in the reality that we have been redeemed. We are redeemed. We are forgiven by God. But now we come to this little section at the end of this first portion here in chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. And Paul tells us two things here. The first thing is that he tells us how this redemption is applied to our lives. In other words, just because Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sins does not mean that everyone is automatically saved. 
Okay, that's not what that means. Something needs to happen in the life of each person for this to become a reality. And so Paul's going to tell us what that is today. But then he also tells us that there's still this future peace that is waiting for us. And this future peace has been part of God's plan for you and for me from the very beginning. And we're going to see again today that God's plan here spans from eternity past, before time began, all the way to eternity future, after time will be over and we will be in his presence forever. And so, again, Paul's moving in this direction where he says, all of this, when we come to understand this all together, this should fill our hearts with praise. Like, we should be overflowing in thankfulness and gratitude to God. Now, we have mentioned this in the previous two messages, and we need to say it again because it's an important part of the context here. All of verses 3 through 14 are one long sentence in the original language. Okay, so uh, Paul is not stopping for a comma. He's not stopping for a period. He's not stopping for a coffee break. He's not stopping for anything. It's like he takes one really deep breath and then he just launches into this praise to God for who God is and everything that he's done for us in Christ. And so we're picking up right where we left off last time because Paul just keeps going in what he's saying here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And we're reminded one more time here. We've seen this in the last couple of messages. We're going to pick up again right where we left off. We see this. Here's our big idea. As followers of Christ, our lives should pour out praise to God. As followers of Christ, our lives should pour out praise to God. That's been the idea all the way through this section as we've looked at identity past, identity present, and now today, identity future. And you'll see here in verses 11 to 14, there's at least two reasons why this should be true, that our lives should be pouring out praise to God. Two reasons why this is true and two implications for our lives. So follow along in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 11. Paul writes, In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All right, so let's start with this. Number one, our lives should pour out praise to God because in Christ, we have a future. We have a future, amen? Amen, Amen. we have a future. And notice here the source of this future. Again, Paul says, as he said a number of times already in this passage, verse 11, he begins by saying, in him, that is, in Christ, Any and all of the spiritual blessings that we have in this life or in the life to come are ours only because of Jesus Christ. And this is, again, is not the first time that Paul has mentioned this in this section. He puts the focus on Christ at least 11 times through verses 3 through 14. The only way that we can experience any of what the Bible talks about here is if we are in Christ. Because of Jesus, which means, and when we talk about being in him, that means that by God's grace, we have repented of our sins and we have believed in the saving work of Jesus Christ for us. We are united to him so that everything that Jesus has becomes everything that we have. 
Now pause here for a second, and, and I wonder, have you ever considered what your future would be like if you were not in him? Never thought, what, what would your life be like? What would your future be like if you were not in Christ? Like, we would be sentenced to experience the full weight of God's wrath against our sins because we had rejected him. And we would be separated from the loving presence of God for all of eternity, and all we would know is the presence of God's judgment. We would have no eternal blessings of any kind at all. But understand that the whole point of this section here in Ephesians 1 is to teach us that God, in his grace, has delivered us from those things and so much more. And instead of giving us a future that offers us nothing, God now, by his grace and mercy, is giving us a future that increases. Christ offers us everything. And so he says here, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. This phrase in uh, verse 11 here is absolutely loaded. Here's what I mean. This phrase, we have obtained an inheritance. When, When Paul wrote this in the Greek, that's all one word. So what takes us five words to communicate took Paul one word. And when a person in the Greek language would use that one word, there was such a force behind that one word that they were talking about something as though it had already happened. So when a person was so convinced that something would happen and they were confident that there was absolutely nothing that could prevent it from happening, they would speak of it as though it had already taken place. That's what Paul's talking about here. And in our economy, a person doesn't officially obtain the inheritance until the other person dies. But Paul is saying here that even though we have not died yet, we have obtained this inheritance. This is our possession. This belongs to us right now. He's actually going to do the same thing in chapter 2 and verse 6. And and we're going to get to that passage, Lord willing, in a few weeks. And I can't wait to get there. It's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. And chapter 2, verse 6, just flip ahead there in your Bible for a second and take a look at that. Paul's talking there in chapter 2 about how we've made this transition from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ because of the grace and the mercy of God. Verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Here it is, verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he's talking there in verse 6 like this has already happened, like we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you're like, well, wait a second, Uh, I'm not seated in the heavenly places. I'm seated at Harvest Bible Chapel in Brantford, Ontario, Canada, like right here, right now. And I look around me and I'm pretty certain this is not heaven. Like, And yet, Paul is talking about this in such a way that he's so confident that this is going to happen. Like absolutely certain that there is nothing that will prevent this from taking place. Nothing will stop it. And so he's talking about it like it's already happened. And that's the nature of our inheritance in Jesus Christ. It is ours. If you are here this morning and you are in Jesus Christ, this inheritance is right now your possession. Absolutely, totally, 100%, take it to the bank, no doubt about it, all in guaranteed, this will happen. I hope your heart is just filling with praise and gratitude even right now. So the other part of what makes this phrase so loaded is that this phrase, we have obtained an inheritance, this can be translated in two different ways. And both translations 
um, are faithful to the message of God's word. Now, I'm going to go a little bit geek squad on you here for a few seconds, okay? And, and um, so just follow me through this. And, and I, I want you to see how absolutely massive this is. Like, I want you to see how big, I want you to see how great and how glorious God is in all of this. And, and I, I pray just as we talk about this for the next few minutes that your heart is just going to be totally overwhelmed. Like just so overwhelmed with the goodness and the glory of God in what we see here just in this one phrase. So here it is. The first way that this uh, phrase can be translated is the way that we just read it. Now, most translations say something like in verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, and that's true. Listen to how Peter describes it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here, listen, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, isn't that amazing? Like, that is unbelievable. This is our inheritance. Peter says here that God has shown unbelievable mercy to us. And because of his mercy, we are born again. And because Jesus is alive, our hope is alive, and we have been given this inheritance. Notice here, Peter says, that is imperishable. Like, it's never going to be taken from us. And it's undefiled. It is completely and totally pure, just like the one who has purchased it for us. And then he says, our inheritance is unfading. It will never decay or lose its value. Like, think about that. All of the earthly inheritance that we can have, it loses its value over time. It decays over time. It's going to fade away eventually. But our eternal inheritance is unfading. It will never decay. It will never lose its value. And Peter says here that it is kept in heaven for you. Like, that is our inheritance. If you are in Jesus Christ, this is your inheritance right here, right now. Now, think about this. What exactly is it that we are inheriting? Because Paul says in Ephesians 1, we have obtained this inheritance. Peter says here that we have this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. But what exactly is it that we are inheriting? Listen, we are inheriting every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. All of it is ours. And it's ours right now. We are inheriting the complete fulfillment of every promise that God has ever made. Like stretching all the way back to the promises that he made to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth and all of that being perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We are inheriting all of the benefits of the resurrection. <laughs> like think about that. We get all the benefits of the resurrection. We get the full and final defeat of sin. We are inheriting a new resurrection body. Amen is right. Like, I've had a cough since before Christmas that I can't shake. No more coughing in heaven, right? And, and it's going to be great. Like, we get new resurrection bodies. We inherit the new heavens and the new earth, not to mention the so many other amazing and unbelievable things that God has promised to give us. But listen, the greatest part of our inheritance 
is that we get God. <laughs> like, does that not just blow your mind? We get Him. And so now, Paul says in Ephesians 1 that all of that and all of that, it's as good as done. It's yours. It's ours. It's ours in Christ. So that's the first way that this phrase, we have obtained an inheritance, that's the first way it can be translated. Here's the second way. Some translations might say something in verse 11 like, in him we were made an inheritance. Now, that's very different, right? On the one hand, we have obtained an inheritance. On the other hand, we were made an inheritance. So on the one hand, we receive something, on the other hand, we are presented as something. And more specifically, we are presented to God as a heritage or has, as his possession. And that translation is equally faithful to God's word. Listen to these verses. Deuteronomy 4, verse 20. It says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. So that verse is saying that we are God's inheritance. We are his possession. We are presented to him. Deuteronomy 9.29 says, For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Again, we are his people. We are his heritage. We are his possession. Listen to what Jesus said in John 6 verse 37. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Think about that. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So in this sense, Jesus says that we are his inheritance. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That, that the Father gives you and me as a gift of love to his Son. John MacArthur has a helpful way of illustrating this. It's, it's like at the moment that we are saved by God's grace and we trust in Jesus Christ, it's almost like the Father says to the Son, I present to you Kevin Weeks. And at the moment of your salvation, it's like the Father says to the Son, I present to you, you. Can you at all just kind of wrap your mind around that conversation in heaven? Like what that must be like, like at the moment of your salvation, the father looking to the son with a smile wide on his face and joy in him. And he says, I give to you my child. And we are forever part of his family. Listen, loved ones, this is who you are. This is your identity. And I wonder if, if there are some here in the room right now who are really struggling to believe that God loves you. Now, God cares about what you're going through because you look at your life right now and you process all the stuff that's happening to you or, or maybe you process all the stuff that has happened to you in the past and, and you're like, man, I just honestly don't know. Like some days I just wonder, like is God there? Does God really care? Does he actually 
wonder what I'm going through? Does he care about what I'm dealing with right now? Listen, I want you to understand, even if that's not you right now, even if that's not what you're going through, but, and you don't necessarily struggle with those particular questions, but you're wondering some things, you're going through some difficult things in your life, and, and you're wondering, God, what do I do in the midst of this? And you know that God is there with you, and you know that he's strengthening you, you know that he loves you, but you just don't know what to do in that particular situation. No matter what your circumstances, I want you to hear this so clearly. You are loved by God so much. You are loved by God so much that not only did he choose you before the foundation of the world, but then he redeemed you through the shed blood of Jesus. He brought you out of the iron furnace of his eternal judgment, so to speak. He has delivered you through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. He has brought you out of the place of judgment by his great power and his outstretched arm, all to make you his own possession so that he may present you to his son in love. He loves you so much. Not only that, but just think how encouraging it is to know that the call of the gospel comes with the reward of the gospel. Like, the call of the gospel is to lose our lives. Like, we lay everything down for the sake of following Christ. Jesus calls us to follow him with the understanding that it could cost us our life. Like, literally, it could cost us our life, but... but, We lay down our lives in the sense that spiritually we lay down our desires, we lay down our wants, we we lay those things down at the foot of the cross of Christ for the sake of following him in obedience and out of love because we, we have this gratitude in our hearts for everything that he's done for us and so we lay down our lives to follow him. That's the call of the gospel and yet at the same time, the reward of the gospel is that we get this inheritance that is far greater than anything that this life could give us. And it's an, an inheritance that makes it worth losing our lives for. The question is simply this, which inheritance are you living for? Which inheritance are you making your pursuit? Listen, there may be some of us in the room right now, and we are giving our lives for all the money that this world can give us and not for the eternal riches that we have in Christ. There could be some of us in the room right now and we are giving our lives for the reputation and the recognition that this world can give us and we're not living in light of the identity that Christ has already given us or that he could give us if we would turn to him in faith. So the call goes out for all of us right here, right now. We need to check our hearts. Like which world are you living for? Which inheritance are you living for? See, the Bible teaches us that we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to us. We are his inheritance and he is ours. And that is good news. So, two ways to translate that little phrase at the very beginning. Which one do we go with? Is this our inheritance or is this the inheritance of Christ? Based on the context here, I think the ESV has translated this well. This is our inheritance. Remember, this opening section in Ephesians is all about what God has done for us in Christ, including now the reality of an eternal inheritance. In fact, in the very next section that Lord willing we'll get to next week, he talks about the other side of that coin, that we are God's inheritance, and and we'll get to that uh, next week. But, But here's the reality that Paul is presenting. The only way that we obtain this inheritance is if we are in him can't forget that. 
We have to be in Christ. There's no other way for this eternity to be yours than to turn away from your sin and to turn to Christ. And if you're here today and you have not done that, then we invite you to do that right away because that is the most important decision that you will ever make. Turn away from yourself, turn away from your sin, and trust in Christ as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. Back to verse 11. Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, Same word as back in verse 5, we are saved because God determined that he would save us. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice here that the entirety of God's plan is carried out entirely by God's power. The entirety of God's plan from his choice in the beginning to the inheritance in the end, the entirety of God's plan is carried out entirely by God's power. This is one of the most amazing pictures of the sovereignty of God in all of the Bible. Paul says here, according to the purpose of him who works. Works is where we get our English word energy or energized. In other words, the fullness of God's plan from eternity past to what we experience in the present to eternity future, all of it is completely dependent on God's ability or on God's energy to make it happen. So notice this, God works all things, all means all, right? God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Listen, God did not need approval from anyone else in order to save you. Like he, he didn't need to take like a long list of names to a committee one day and, and um, give that list to the committee and then they needed to crunch the numbers and take a vote and, and they all gathered together in the church basement in the fellowship hall, right? And they had that disgusting orange punch or whatever from McDonald's, remember that? Like that was just disgusting, right? And, and no, they didn't need to do that. That's not the way that it works. God doesn't need to counsel, God doesn't need anyone to counsel him and tell him what to do. He doesn't need any help from anyone else. Check this out. Romans 11, verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Implied answer there, uh, no one. Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Uh, No one. Like God doesn't need anyone to tell him what to do. Like you think about the events of your life. Think about what you're going through right now. Think specifically of what Paul talks about here in Ephesians 1 regarding your salvation and what you're going through and, and all the stuff that's happening for you right now. But when you think back to that moment of your salvation and all of the circumstances that were happening at that particular time in your life, God, in his sovereignty, in his control, in his power, brought all of those circumstances together in just the way that he wanted them to come together so that in that moment, you would see the glory and the greatness of who he is and you would turn away from your sin and you would turn to Christ in repentance and faith, and he would save you for the glory of his name. All of that happening, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God orchestrated every single part of your salvation. Listen, every part of it, from God's choice to predestination, to adoption, to redemption, to regeneration, to all points in between and all points that would follow, all of it is completely God's energy. 
It is God's work within your life, which means then that if it's all God's work in your life, then the sole reason that God has saved you and given you this glorious inheritance in Christ is because he loves you. Which leads then to our first response. We have a future and that must fuel our praise. That has to fuel our praise. When we consider what has been done for us in Christ, look again at verse 12. Paul says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. There it is. I mean, don't miss, at the beginning of verse 12, don't miss the so that. Like, Paul uses these two words together quite a bit. It's one of his greatest weapons in the New Testament. And he gives us the reason why God has given us not only this inheritance, but why he has given us this salvation. He says, so that Paul's salvation... So that the salvation of the Jewish people would be to the praise of God's glory. And the same thing is true about you and me. Like our salvation is not about us. Your salvation is not about you. Now, are we involved in our salvation? Yes, of course we are. We've talked about that in detail over the past few weeks. But understand something really important here, loved ones. Our redemption is not God's ultimate end. God's ultimate end is the praise and the glory of his name, which is most powerfully accomplished through the way that he has saved us. That's the way it's always been. Isaiah 43 verse 7 up on the screen for you, it says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. A little bit later in that same chapter, in verse 21, God says, The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Like the entirety of God's plan is carried out entirely by God's power, so that in all things God will be glorified. So this now must fuel our praise. Like when you consider that if you are in Christ, All of the stuff in chapter one so far, this is stuff that God has done for you. Like when we consider that, when we try to wrap our mind and our heart around that reality, how then can we not sing and shout our praises to the almighty God? Like when we consider all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus, how then can we not hear these truths proclaimed and not shout amen or hallelujah or praise the Lord or whatever because we're so thankful and we're filled with so much gratitude for what God is doing. Like when you consider that God has not only done these things for us, but now his works, verse 11, his works are so powerful and so divinely energized that even right now, God is going into parts of the world that have long been unreached by this gospel and he's saving people by this very power. Like how then can we not give our lives as a sacrifice of, of praise and worship to the one who has sacrificed everything for us? Like this, this isn't just another thing for us to add to the list of things to do. I hope you understand that. Like, it's not like we need to walk out of here this morning and, and okay, I gotta do this now. Like, it's not that at all. Like, this is what we do because our hearts are filled up with such love and affection for the one who has given us everything in himself, including a future that we would never have if he had not made it possible for us. 
We have everything because of Christ. How then can we not praise him? We have a future, and this must fuel our praise. Number two, we gotta keep going. Here's number two. Our lives should be pouring out praise to God because in Christ, our future is guaranteed. Our future is guaranteed. So not only do we have this future, but now our future is guaranteed. Take a look at verse 13. Paul says, In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, you'll notice here that Paul makes a turn in the people that he's talking about. So look at verse 12. Verse 12, he says, So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, then in verse 13, he says, In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth. And then in verse 14, he says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? So he goes here from we to you to our in three verses. Here's why. In verse 12, Paul is talking about the Jewish Christians of whom he is one who have put their hope in the Messiah. But in verse 13, when he says you, he's talking about the Gentile Christians who are the believers in Ephesus to whom he is writing this letter. You also, when you heard the gospel, you were saved. Then in verse 14, when he says our He's emphasizing the reality that the reward of the gospel is the same for anyone who will believe in Christ. Like this is the power of the gospel. The Messiah is strong enough to save anyone, Jew or Gentile. And he's going to unpack that more in chapter 2 when we get there. But the, the Messiah is strong enough to save anyone. Just put it in our context for a minute. Think for a minute about that moment that you came to know Christ. In that moment of your salvation, when, when God opened your eyes and, and he poured out grace and mercy upon you, gave you faith to believe in Christ, and, and just think about what your life was like at that moment, at that time. And, and God, by his grace, sends Jesus, and, and Jesus reaches down into that pit and rescues you from where you were and gives you new life in him. Like Just think about that for a minute. And then think about the reality that Jesus has done that for so many people who are sitting around you right now, too. And the pit that you were in is different from the pit that they were in, which is different from the pit that I was in. And yet, the Messiah is so strong and so powerful that he can reach into any pit and save anybody. Regardless of the sin, regardless of the shame, regardless of the guilt that you carry, Jesus Christ is strong enough to save anyone who will believe in him. Look again at verse 13. He says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. I love that so much. Like, look at that. This gospel is the word of truth. Notice the definite article. It is the word of truth. This is the word of truth. This is not subject to a greater standard of truth. This is the standard of truth. And every other piece, listen, loved ones, listen so carefully, every other piece of information and experience and thought and reality that we go through must ultimately submit to this truth. 
It is this truth that tells us the gospel of our salvation. It is this truth, in other words, that tells us the good news of our rescue, that in Jesus Christ, God has provided a way for our salvation. And when we heard the good news of our rescue and believed in our rescuer, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, this is an important reality that we need to grab a hold of. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. A seal was often used in ancient times as a mark of identification. And the seal was made from hot wax and then was imprinted with a signet ring. And and when a person saw the seal, they knew that it carried the authority of whomever had sealed it. It's very similar today when you look at a letter and there's that little circle in one of the corners that's kind of lifted up off of the surface of the page. That's the seal. And, and you know that it carries the authority of whomever has sealed it. The seal in ancient times represented three things. It represented authenticity. And so when you saw the seal, you, saw, um, you knew that you were holding something that was the real thing. It was authentic. And not only did it represent authenticity, it also represented ownership. When you saw that seal, you knew that uh, you knew who the owner of the document was because everyone had a unique seal. Everybody's seal was a little bit different. So it represented not only authenticity and ownership, but that seal also represented security. No one was allowed under any circumstances to violate the seal. In other words, the contents of whatever had been sealed were intended only for the one for whom it had been sealed. So that seal represents authenticity, ownership, and security. And now Paul is saying the same thing is true for your salvation. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Jesus, you were sealed in that very moment with the Holy Spirit of God. And his seal upon your life guarantees at least three things. It guarantees authenticity. You know that your salvation is the real thing. You have been given the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit seals you. The Holy Spirit seals your salvation as a way of guaranteeing that the salvation of God upon your life is the real thing. Notice here, Paul says it guarantees it. Absolutely guarantees it. There's nothing that's going to change that because Romans 8, 9 says you are in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So not only does it guarantee authenticity, but the seal of the Spirit upon us guarantees ownership. When the Spirit of God seals you, your life is no longer your own. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that you were bought at a price and your body now is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God who lives within you. So it guarantees authenticity and ownership, but the seal of the Spirit of God upon us also guarantees security. Like Notice this, when, when you are sealed by the Spirit of God, There is no one and there is no thing under any circumstance that will ever be able to violate that seal upon your life. You forever have the assurance that you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you. The Holy Spirit is given to you at the moment of conversion. At that very moment, when you trust in Christ and believe in him, you are given the Spirit of God. Romans 8, verse 9 says, Again, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Romans 8, verse 9. 
The Holy Spirit is given to you at the moment of your salvation as a guarantee, a down payment Paul's talking about here. Like you put a down payment on a house as an indication that you have purchased that house and and then over time you continue to deposit money into your mortgage account until the house is fully and finally yours. And in much the same way, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a down payment. First, to guarantee that we have been purchased by God. But then over time, the Spirit of God continues to make deposits into our life by doing things in us and doing things for us and doing things around us that are little samples of the inheritance that is still to come until that day arrives when we are taken into glory and we stand face to face with our Savior and we see him as he is and the entire inheritance at that moment is fully and finally ours and we acquire possession of it. But until that day comes, we have the Spirit of God who has sealed us as a guarantee that one day that's gonna be ours. Listen, We have a future, and that should fuel our praise, but we also know this, our future is guaranteed, and that must feed our purpose. So verse 13 sums up part of our mission as a church. Our mission as a church is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. So where does that begin? It begins in the same place that it does for every one of us, when people hear the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believe in Christ. I I love how Paul talks about this in Romans 10. Listen to this. He says, Romans 10, verse 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Like it's the same pattern as Ephesians 1 here, right? But, But he takes it a step further here. Listen to what he says next, Romans 10. He says, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Listen, like, he's not just talking here about the guy who stands up at the front of the church and preaches the Bible. He's talking about all of us who are saved. Like, if you're saved, then you have been sent. Jesus has sent you and me with this gospel of salvation to invite people into this eternal inheritance. And the only way that we receive this inheritance, the only way anyone receives this inheritance, is by hearing the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believing in Christ. Again, this is not, understand, this is not just another thing for us to do. This is something we do because of the gratitude that just wells up in our hearts and overflows from us because the Father has chosen us, the Son has redeemed us, and the Spirit of God has sealed us. We have a past, and we have a present, and we have a future because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Listen, we are saved. If you are in Christ, if you are in him, we are saved and our lives should be pouring out praise to God.